Hello and welcome to this episode of The Crit. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm India Block, your other host. Now, recently we've been a little caught up working on the next issue of Desenio, the journal that we edit. So this podcast is going to be looking back at recent design news from October. A lot of design news happened. We've got recaps of Fashion Week. We've got the opening of a project that I think has been about 10 years in the making in London. Um, Lots of interesting stories for you. And uh, yes, we're hoping it'll tide you over until the launch of our very special winter edition. Which we'll have more information on soon. But in the interim, let's get on with the show. Okay, so the first story I want to talk about this month, and it's been pretty unavoidable if you work in design and architecture, is Neom in Saudi Arabia's Tabuk province. Now, Neom is fairly unavoidable at the best of times for anyone who doesn't know what it is, who somehow managed to uh, escape its claws. Neom is a $500 billion, 26,500 square kilometre mega region I suppose I don't even know what you call it it's bigger than a city let's go with mega region or giga region or something like that in the middle of the desert and that's going to include a nine million citizen mega city which is called the line if you haven't seen the line it's 170 kilometers long but only 200 meters wide uh, flanked on either side by 500 meter high walls of buildings that have a sort of mirrored coating so it almost looks like a huge mirrored wall stretching through the desert alongside that neom also has a floating city because why not you know if you're going to go big if you're going to do a giga region conquer the sea as well uh, that's called oxagon and then the final element is trojina <laughs> which is very strange you know not that many positive connotations around sort of trojina makes me think of the trojan horse and so on uh, and that's some kind of sports and wellness resort in the mountains where they're going to let you do winter sports um, in the middle of the desert. Don't really know how that works, but apparently it will be possible. And all of this development is going to be running on 100% renewable power. And we know that's true because they've told us that's true. It's definitely doing that. And it's also going to be deeply sustainable. Um so we'll take no further questions on that. Uh, Neom is apparently going to, and this is a quote, provide a new model for sustainable living, working and prospering. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm very reassured by that statement. Um, not <laughs> concerned in the slightest. Um, I'm very reassured indeed. No, 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 no concerns or worries at all. So as you, you may have already guessed, uh, this all seems incredibly unlikely, implausible. We're seeing a lot of shiny renders, glossy videos, um, big statements kind of designed to get as much press coverage as possible while answering very few questions about the how well thought through this idea is. Um, You know, some people are estimating that just for the line alone, so that big, long city, that would produce some 1.8 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide just to construct it. Um, You know, I mean, it's it's not going to come easy or green building something out of literal desert. It's amazing to learn that 1.8 billion tonnes is entirely sustainable, though. I I feel encouraged by that news. Like, if if we can do that, great. (laughs) 
<laughs> climate change is going to be easy to beat. Yeah, I mean, that's roughly equivalent to about four years of the UK's emissions. So maybe we could just hit pause for four years to let them get on with this, you know. I mean, arguably the UK has sort of hit pause. (laughs) I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that the UK will grind to a halt for an extended period, given our current political situation. So you may be thinking, how would you produce um, water enough to keep a well-hydrated population of a mega-smart city? Well, they're going to use desalination techniques on the seawater, presumably next to the floating city. Um, There will be vertical farms. (laughs) Please, India, Oxagon. (laughs) Use its proper name, Oxagon. Oxagon sounds like a sort of zit treatment for teenagers. <laughs> right, and then there's the um, food, which will be produced by Vertical Farms, famously the best orientation for farms. You know, horizontal farms, terribly wasteful in terms of space and access to sunlight. I think they're very passe. Yeah, I mean, who's who's farming horizontally these days? bit orcs, bit cringe. Luddites. <laughs> Luddites and uh, machine breakers. Yeah, so at the moment it's it's been feeling like some kind of fantastical PR exercise. Um, you know, a lot of us kind of thought that it would never happen and that uh, actually... Yeah. I thought it was never going to happen. It's, it's so sci-fi inflected, I assumed. It's something that will get talked about a lot, but will never see the light of day. Yeah, I kind of assumed it was going to be a garden bridge scenario, that they'd kind of give us all these fancy um, renderings, and then, you know, a few years down the line, nothing comes of it. But a lot of people have made a lot of money out of nothing. And, you know, it's all a very convenient distraction from the fact that the um, Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has actually promised to ramp up oil production. Um, So claiming to build a super sustainable city in the middle of the desert is, you know, quite a good distraction for the world media. It's a hell of a dead cat. Mm. But, you know, uh, this month we actually got some proof that the line is definitely going ahead. Uh, You know, they've said they've been breaking ground for a while, but we got a um, beautifully produced uh, set of drone um, footage captured of huge earthworking machinery digging out this trench for the foundations and carting all of these um, tons of sand and rock away. I think I was genuinely surprised to see it. I mean, obviously, some shots of a vast trench being dug does not mean that the line, which was designed by Morphosis, is ever going to see the light of day. Still possible this entire thing collapses, but... It is something. So that was interesting, but it wasn't the only news around Neon that broke this month. So I think the more salient piece of news in some ways, well, no, definitely, actually, is the creation of Neon is obviously demanding forced displacements because this thing is huge. Like the the land that Neon will cover is bigger than Israel. So... The Saudi Arabian government is trying to clear that land and, understandably, a lot of people don't want to leave their lands to enable that. They don't want to have to leave their homes in order for Saudi Arabia to build this vast mega-district. The Saudi Arabian government's response 
has been incredibly hardline and brutal. So earlier this month, um, ALQST, which is a human rights organisation, reported that Saudi Arabia had handed down death sentences to three members of the Huaytet tribe whose family had been forcibly evicted and displaced to make way for the mega project. They're not the first members of that tribe to face a very brutal government response. Another member who protested the development, they put some uh, videos online, uh, was shot dead by security forces in 2020. So you have this farcical situation of a mega project that's being represented as presenting a kinder, more sustainable future for the world, um, and which is going ahead and footage is going out trying to drum up excitement. But it's being achieved essentially through oppression and state-sanctioned murder. This is a scandal. This is appalling what's going on there. Yeah, and I think it's been tempting to kind of write this off as a joke, a punchline, when actually it's a very serious issue for um, a lot of people and their daily lives. When we say desert, it's it's not an uninhabited desert. There are people who have made it their home um, for hundreds of years. And, you know, Saudi Arabia's history of human rights abuses um, is is pretty awful and it's been well documented. But in this instance, you know, there's a particular responsibility borne by the design and architecture community because, you know, they are the organisations that are lending legitimacy to this project. It's It's not just words. There's a lot of actual designs being drawn up and um you know you said the line has been designed by Morphosis um then Trojana this mountain retreat um that is Azaha Hadid Architects project um and actually Norman Foster of Foster and Partners um used to actually be on the advisory board for Neon he did have the good grace to step down after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi the journalist but you know, he still signed up to it in the first place and it's not like that was the first incident. And these big name architecture firms, they give the project its veneer of respectability. I mean, that is kind of why they've been hired. They can talk about how they are also committed to sustainability, but really it's because they've got the big names and that is what will attract investors. That will make people take it seriously because they are practices that have produced you know, not on the scale. I mean, who has produced something on this scale since, you know, the pyramids? Um, but uh, they they are playing right into this plan. And again, this is nothing new. We know that um, architecture and architects often do take some pretty unsavoury commissions from some pretty abhorrent clients. And um, Rowan Moore wrote a good piece on the history around this for The Observer, which kind of connects directly to this news about Neom. But it's a conversation that needs to happen pretty urgently, not not just around Saudi Arabia, but also for Russian projects. Or if you look at Qatar, where we've got these stadiums coming up for the FIFA World Cup and there's been so many human rights abuses especially around the laborers who've been building those stadiums and Foster and Partners and Zaha Hadid Architects they designed those stadiums. Yeah I think it's right to flag up Rowan's piece it's it's a very good one 
Um, and it, it makes for interesting reading, particularly around, I think, the justification architects tend to give as to why they're taking on these jobs. But they always give a very similar answer, a more palatable answer, which is kind of, oh, well, it's better to be inside the tent than outside. If you do this kind of work, you have the ability to engage with those societies and their power brokers and try and nudge them in a more progressive direction. You hear this a lot. I think one of the examples that Rowan gives is OMA in relation to the CCTV building in Beijing. And I find it so infuriating that architecture firms are still trotting out this tired line, because it's just blatantly not true. Like, in history, what architect has successfully nudged an oppressive state towards being less oppressive? It's not like some oppressive state is going to say, actually, we are going to decriminalise homosexuality because that architect made quite an impressive case for it. And they've really made me see the error of my ways by building us a beautiful stadium. And that that just made me feel, yes, we've got to do something about it. And it's also it's such a disgustingly slippery argument as well, because the architects always do this thing of saying, oh, well, we can't be held responsible for any of the things going on. We only did the designs. What do you want us to do? It's not our fault that awful things are going on. And then at the same time, their justification for doing those designs is, well, because we can help prevent awful things going on. I mean, like, they're kind of arguing it both ways. And They should just be honest about it. If they're going to do it, at least be upfront. The reason they're doing it is because they want the money or they don't want that money to go somewhere else. There's that ego thing about it, isn't it? This idea that no place should be safe from having their their great designs inflicted upon them. It may be a cruel, oppressive place, but at least they'll have my beautiful architecture to look at. We, We should say a proviso of a lot of people who work in these studios that are producing this kind of work presumably don't agree with it either. It's not all architects doing this, it's the management of certain firms. Yeah, I mean, you've really summed up the kind of cognitive dissonance that's required there to simultaneously claim that you have no power over a situation, but also that you have to take it in case you could exert some form of soft power. It's also this like sort of like weird... I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something very colonial about the fact that it tends to be these governments that look to kind of Western practices to lend that veneer of respectability. But then, (laughs) you know, why are they like what what are these practices going to bring to the... Yeah. Who, who's the... never been involved in oppressive regimes? The West, of course. Yeah, <laughs> we'll no, fa- <laughs> famously. Oh, actually, that's true. I mean, maybe that's just why they're bringing in that skill set. Yeah. We're just so good at lying to ourselves about the real reason that we're there, which is to make a lot of money. And it almost kind of feels like they are treating us, the public, and you know, their workers as well, as though they're stupid, as though no one can't see that obviously these are the projects that have the big money and this is the sort of thing that allows you to have a huge global practice. Um, Mm. But I think, you know, you made a good point about 
the workers that it's you know it's connected to what we were discussing last month in my piece for Desenio 34 about the importance mm. of unions and how historically you know the architects and the architectural workers at these practices haven't really thought of themselves as laborers in the traditional sense they haven't thought of themselves as workers who produce something and that is actually quite deliberate because if you don't feel that you are of the same class as the people who are going to be oppressed by your architecture it's easier to design buildings that are going to continue to kind of create those uneven power dynamics and I'm sure that many of the designers who are at Morphosis or Zaha Hadid um, or you know Fosters are not happy about the fact that their work is being tied to these projects but I mean what power do they have? It's it's super difficult and I've seen a few people on Twitter saying things like well everyone at those firms should quit otherwise they're complicit and I mean, I can sort of understand the sentiment, but for lots of people, it's not just an option to suddenly quit your job. I, I'm sure lots of people at those firms are deeply unhappy at, with the involvement, but it's not always easy to get out of something. Yeah, I mean, I do think that I'm probably a bit far left on this and that I would rather quit than work on a project that has literally killed people. But... You know, if you have a family, if you have rent to pay, um, you you can't just immediately leave, which is why striking, coming together with the rest of your of your team to say, actually, we're not okay with this. I think actually that's better than quitting because if you quit, they'll just hire someone else. Like we know that there's huge competition for these jobs anyway, and that people already put up with some really shocking working conditions. So yeah, don't quit. Join join a union and and say, you know, that we don't want this practice to work on projects that we think are, you know, ethically indefensible because it's also it's going to be helping the practice further down the line because um it's going to be really embarrassing if your if your practice has its name attached to a project that then becomes synonymous with human rights abuses and petrocapitalism um so you know really they'd be doing them a favor i think if you're one of the decision makers at studios involved in projects like this just stop it <laughs> just say no just, just to drugs and to neon and to megacities you don't have this god-given right to build megacities and the world really doesn't need them this thing is not going to be sustainable and that's what's so frustrating we work in design and we have lots of issues with designers people across the field do but we also respect it and want to take seriously this idea that design as a cultural force does have the potential to do some socio-political good and if you want to believe that of design then actually live up to that billing stop messing around and building ski resorts in the desert so this is nothing on the scale of a megacity, but a few weeks ago I got invited to the press preview ahead of the reopening of Battersea Power Station. Oh, very nice. Yes, down on the bank of the River Thames. It was a very old school preview as well. Um, they gave us champagne, they gave us nibbles, we were ushered into the sales suite. <laughs> Didn't you go to this in the morning? 
it was the afternoon. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a bit strange to have all these kind of scruffy architecture journalists milling around. Um, yeah, but it, it was interesting to see. And I didn't just go down for the free champagne. I feel like I have a kind of personal connection to the project. It's been ongoing for my entire career as a journalist in London, reporting on property and architecture and design in this city. And I actually lived down in that part of um, London for years. I lived in Vauxhall and Kennington. And so plenty of the disruption um, of building the power station was something that I experienced in my day-to-day life. I couldn't run down that side of the riverfront um, because it was all walled off um, due to the building work. And then um, part of the project was extending the northern line. So you can now take the northern line of the tube down to Battersea, but that required extending and building out the Kennington tube station. So, so yeah, it was uh, it was good to see it up close in person. It's officially open now. It opened on the fourteenth of October, and I uh, don't think you've actually seen it yet, have you, Ollie? No, I haven't made it south of the river yet. I'm afraid. But what I'm going to try and do is offer a small potted history of it, because it's an interesting history and a a colourful history of the power station. As you said, it's built on the banks of the River Thames, but that actually happens in two stages. So it's one building, but within there were two power stations. So Battersea Power Station A, which completes in 1935, and Station B in 1941. And famously, it's one of the largest brick buildings in the world. It is very impressive. I think if the name isn't ringing any bells, it's got those four huge chimney stacks rising up a bit like an upturned table. It was designed by the architects J. Theo Halliday and Giles Gilbert Scott, who, if you're up on your design history, you'll probably know as the creator of the red telephone box. Uh, Also the architect of Bankside Power Station, which now houses Tate Modern. Building a coal-fired power station in the centre of a city, let alone London, I think sounds very crazy now, given what we know about pollution. And this site, it it burned through some one million tonnes of coal a year. To be fair to the past, I don't think it was that popular at the time with local people either. So it's not as if everyone in Vauxhall was going, it's so nice that we now have coal-rich air, good fortifying coal-rich air to, to get us ready for the day. But you know, it obviously starts to wind down over time. So I think it's decommissioned in stages to 1975 and 1983. This is kind of in the in the wilderness for 30 years. So it had grade two listing. So the original plan, which had been to demolish it, make way for new housing, can't happen. Uh, then it was bought by the consortium behind uh, Alton Towers, uh, the theme park up in the north of England. Battersea for a period it was going to be turned into an indoor theme park it was going to be the Alton Towers of the South which sounds very odd but you know 80s probably everyone having those long liquid lunches having those 10am champagne receptions where this seemed like a sensible plan and not a bizarro world idea that became too expensive, so it gets pulled, um, but not before they'd already removed bits of the roof to take the old machinery out. So then you have a situation where Batsy Power Station is just kind of left naked, exposed to the elements for 
two decades while various developers went back and forth. Eventually settles up with the current deal, um, which is backed by a group of Malaysian investors. Yeah, and there's something so darkly amusing about this shopping centre in a converted coal-fired power station opening right at the moment. The entire country tips into a twin energy and a cost of living crisis. I mean, they couldn't have they couldn't have timed it at a more ironic time. But before we kind of get into the politics of it, I do want to talk about the design a bit because I, I think it's really commendable what Wilkinson Iyer, who were the architect of practice, who took on um, this kind of main part of the conversion, what they've managed to achieve because the restoration and conversion work is really incredible. Looking at it, you wouldn't know that this was a derelict building and not just empty derelict, like the roof was off. It was it was coming apart at the seams. And now it's um it's kind of sp- spooky how good it looks. Um uh, maybe my brain has been a bit rotted by Hollywood, but it <laughs> felt like stepping onto a film set. Um you know, kind of almost going back in time except that then you realize that the shop fronts aren't for like uh you know 1920s flapper dresses they're for adidas sports bras <laughs> ipads rather than um just lovely tins of goose fat or something yes although well we didn't get to see uh we didn't get to see where apple is going to be based but of i course can tell into you the building aren't they yeah that was UK that was the big like linchpin that having apple in there is um is gonna be a big deal and facebook as well i think is gonna have offices um interestingly they're kind of doing it in quite an asian style where uh the offices aren't gonna have a separate entrance you're going to enter through the shopping center even if you're working in the in the apple side and i mean you know you can really tell that it is a shopping center um first and foremost but they have really paid a lot of attention to the art deco elements so you know built in the design in the 20s built in the 30s it's kind of peak art deco and it's it's amazing that that I mean, you know, it used to be a power station. It wasn't a building that the general public went into, but it was still really beautiful. They even found the old metal doors that have these fantastic kind of very uh, muscled men. Muscly men. Muscled men uh, raising industry. Crushing coal in their hands. (laughs) To produce diamonds for the nation. (laughs) Wielding steel beams. Um, There's the original control room, which is the hub where all of the electricity for all these different substations around London would have been controlled. And they've restored that painstakingly, right down to the original dials, matching all the paint. And, you know, they've kept that sense of scale. They haven't sort of, like, chopped up those internal spaces into floors it kind of goes around the perimeter and so you can get a sense of the scale of what this building would have been like when it was uh, an operational power plant and they've even kept on the floor um, some of the original brick to sort of mark out the dimensions of where some of the machinery would have been so you know they haven't sanitized the history and this is I suppose, you know, this is an example of how architects 
can take on a project that has a big budget and a big big name awareness but they can actually use that to do something you know that's worthwhile that's preserved a piece of history and um that has made it something you know beautiful and functional but as with the line they are some complicated political social issues that are baked in to a project of this scale in a city that is experiencing the kind of problems that London is. Yeah absolutely I mean it's one thing for the architecture to be exquisite and that's great really important really nice but it's sort of easy to do that when it's a luxury development right now one of the big issues around Battersea power station has been the question over affordable housing so every development like this in england has something called a section 106 agreement and won't go into all the details but essentially it means private developers are held to a certain standard of giving something back to the local area if they're going to put a big development in there And the way in which you're meant to give back is through so-called affordable housing. So you make a certain amount of housing available. Now, originally Battersea was meant to have more than 600 affordable homes as part of this scheme. But in 2017, Wandsworth Council agrees that they could bring that number down by quite a lot, by 40%, which is a very heavy reduction. So now there's just 386 affordable homes. And to add a little bit more insult to that injury, those homes aren't being built in and amongst the high-end new-built apartments that are within that wider development. They're going to be all lumped together on a separate site, on some land that the developers built. So the affordable housing isn't really woven into the scheme in any meaningful way and has been quite severely reduced. Yeah, and this was a real sore spot when we were there at the press preview. Um, You know, quite a lot of the architecture press in London is fairly left-wing, and this has been, um, you know, one of the scandals. Um, The developers, uh, they claim that by building all of the affordable housing on a separate site, they'll be able to deliver it earlier, um, because originally they were going to build it um, close to the land where they're where they've been building the um, the northern line extension so it was meant to kind of go over that uh, whereas by purchasing this extra bit they could get along and build that without being held up by other construction work that's happening I mean that makes sense I mean it, it's not <laughs> it, it's an it's a explanation. It's an explanation. <laughs> yeah, but it, it it is kind of funny how every single time these developers have to build these affordable homes, um, they mysteriously end up kind of on some, um, you know, disused brownfield site half a mile down the road, or they have a separate door, or they have fences that block the children that live there off from using the playground and the main area. Um, it's very out of sight, out of mind, isn't it? it there's there's something quite ugly about doing that I think yeah and you can't argue that something is better than nothing um which is depressing in of itself but yeah they they could have knocked down the entire power station built a brand new shopping center that would have been quicker that would have been cheaper you know I mean the grade two listing would have been hard to get around but this idea that they're doing it out of the kindness of <laughs> the their nation's hearts. in chaos, though. Just knock it down. Probably no one would notice. <laughs> It'd be long gone before uh, politics got round to doing anything about it. 
Yeah, well, I mean, famously, Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, when launching um, uh, his Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies, um, was told that he absolutely could not paint the front of his theatre all black. Um, and he just did it anyway and paid the fine because that is how rich people operate in mm-hmm. central London. Um, Naughty Webber. Indeed. But um, there's this kind of... It's not out of the kindness of their own hearts. Um, the the power station is this icon on the riverfront. Um, it will draw people in, and you know I'm I'm sure people will go there to shop. And you know that film set vibe was giving me that sort of mm, Disneyland sort of idea. Like it is a a destination where you are kind of cosplaying inside this oh historic industrial London and then um you know I had one colleague who said that it really reminded them of being inside an airport that kind of cavernous space where you've got a lot of consumerism happening um I personally felt it was um because it's the same architect the same original architect as like the Tate Modern um, which has also been converted but into from a power station into an art gallery Mm. it's kind of like being inside the Tate Modern but the evil mirrorverse version where instead of art galleries everything is the gift shop (laughs) Um, and you know that control room that was really cool that's not something that the public's going to be able to just pop in and have a look at it's going to be an event space Um, so there's this kind of exclusivity around Mm. it likewise the you know the flats were were pretty nice I really liked these rooftop garden spaces that they had but that's key fob entry you can't just go in there and enjoy all these green spaces that they have created um you know they they sourced all these original bricks and that um kind of poignantly uh apparently it actually saved the brick makers they were about to go out of business and then you know the developers came along and said thousands of your bricks good sir to kind of recreate this facade (laughs) they Um, dragged them out of retirement for one final job (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) last big score and there was even this kind of like weird element where they'd I think they'd taken the old dials that couldn't be kind of refurbished from that control room and they were using them as decoration in the sales suite and in little boxes in the lobbies for the apartment blocks and it just perhaps it's like dark or a stretch but it felt very serial killer displaying the trophies of their victims It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because in some ways, creative reuse and working with existing industrial and architectural fabric is very obviously the right thing to do. It's a really good and important step that as a field we need to take. However, you also have to consider like, how is what is that reuse being yoked to, right? So, I mean, you see it as well a little bit with what um, Thomas Heatherwick did down at Coal Drops Yard, working with the old infrastructure there. And in some ways, fantastic. It's 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 not going to waste. It's not being knocked down. Climate-wise, this is more responsible. But then you think, yeah, but all this kind of old history is now being put in service of just luring people in to go shopping or to buy a super ritzy 
luxury flat. I mean, personally, I wish they'd just done the theme park. <laughs> I think the theme park would have been better. At least it's up front and on the nose. I'd have been first in line if they'd built a nemesis. <laughs> nemesis again, but in the heart of Battersea Power Station. And I think what you were saying, the, the comparison between... Um, one power station becoming an art gallery and one power station becoming a, a ritzy mall. There's probably some interesting things in there to talk about and think about the direction in which London and the UK's politics and development have gone in the past few decades. I mean, OK, so Batu did escape being turned into a theme park, but the whole city is kind of becoming one. It, it's, it's a playground for rich, wealthy developers. Sad. <laughs> Hello, Crit listeners. We're pleased to announce that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Maison et Objet, Paris's premier design fair. As we approach the end of the year, you may already be thinking of the next. In that case, may we suggest that a visit to Maison et Objet is an excellent fixture to book into your diary for January 2023. This year's show is curated around the theme of Take Care, with Maison et Objet's team drawing inspiration from the ways in which objects and spaces can help to look after our mental and physical health, as well as caring for nature and our built environment. If that sounds of interest, then simply visit maison-objet.com to find out more. The fair is open for trade visitors only from 19th to 23rd of January 2023 at Paris-Nord-Villepont. Super early bird ticket sales end 2nd of January 2023. So, get your tickets for Maison et Objet now! So one of the stories that really caught my eye this month was the cacao outage in South Korea. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, if anyone doesn't know cacao, it's a suite of apps that have become really quite dominant in Korean society. So they cover banking, payments, ride hailing, maps, and games. The main one is Cacao Talk, which started as a messaging app. Uh, you could think of it as being kind of similar to WeChat in China, for instance. And it's now found on more than 90% of phones um, in South Korea. So that's an estimated 47 million users in a country of 51.7 million people. So cacao is really very, very present and very dominant indeed. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of like market domination that a company dreams of. But uh, it's also very precarious to... Uh, be everyone's kind of primary mode of communication if your company is hit by any issues, um, especially unforeseen issues, which is exactly what happened um, this last month. So there was a fire at a data center outside of Seoul. So that's a place where all of the servers that would be powering these internet, um, you know, usage would be. And 32,000 of those servers had to be um, turned off. And they were down for hours um, because, you know, a fire in a room and a building full of so many electronics was incredibly dangerous. But then all of those cacao users across the country were left without these services that, you know, it wasn't just a minor inconvenience. They were pretty central to how people ran their lives, ran their businesses and understandably 
people were pretty shocked and outraged. One of the co-CEOs of Cacao has resigned over the catastrophe and the remaining CEO has come out and said that, you know, they're really sorry. And they had actually planned for, you know, eventualities such as surges in traffic, but it hadn't prepared for this complete shutdown of an entire data centre. And Cacao is blaming the fire on the lithium-ion batteries, which are made by uh, a subsidiary of SK Group, which is also the main company that runs that data centre. SK Group have pushed back against that. They say that's not the reason, that's not the problem. Um, It's, you know, obviously it's going to be years probably of corporate litigation, but (laughs) The interesting thing was, is that, yeah, 47 million users who couldn't use that app for hours. Mm, sounds like an inside job. <laughs> Actually, that's probably libelous. That uh, so is the, not going to get past in, our lives. In the name of balance, it doesn't sound like an inside job. <laughs> um, but the, the thing I suppose that really caught my eye around this was the kind of bigger structural issue, because it was quite interesting. The president of South Korea came out and actually warned that the government might, and then this is a quote, take necessary measures for the sake of the people if it finds the market is distorted in a monopoly or severe oligopoly to the extent where it serves a similar function as national infrastructure. And I mean, I think that's spot on because that's the thing about a lot of these apps. They're so central to life. They kind of are infrastructure. You can't escape them. And this is a problem you see not just in South Korea, you see it everywhere. I mean, think about Google. Who goes through life without using Google? It's sort of essential. Okay, there are one or two competitors out there, but uh, not really. Um, But Google is a PLC. And it operates as a PLC. It's not publicly owned or anything like that. And I think that's quite alarming. And it's something which we should be discussing a hell of a lot more because this is a really familiar debate. Like, you know, this is what they were talking about in the 19th century with robber barons controlling the railways and the energy infrastructure. And the same sort of thing is being played out in 21st century tech. You have immensely wealthy corporations and individuals who control something which all society needs and has to use, but doesn't really have any say in how it's run. Yeah, when we think about security for internet structures, we tend to think immediately of kind of hackers and um, malicious like overseas um, action. But Data centers are really vulnerable. They're very vulnerable um, to overheating because it's a lot of machines that are being run um, at full power for, you know, they don't ever turn them off. So a lot of new data centers are being built in places like under the sea or in the Arctic Circle. And they are vulnerable to, to catastrophe. And that is the sort of thing that needs to be planned for on a government level. That needs to be up there with what happens to the power plants, what happens to the hospitals if, you know, a natural disaster strikes. But it is interesting to see this played out in a particularly Korean context um, because the country has historically had issues of the... The country has this history of the... Chai bowls, so huge conglomerates such as Hyundai or Samsung that will be run by a family and end up playing a really outsized role in the nation's economy. And 
this has been linked to monopolistic behaviour and congratulations for saying oligopoly correct the first time because that is a very hard word to say. Um, But, you know, if you control a monopoly, you also exert a considerable amount of political control. So the fact that that's now taking place in the digital space too is really interesting and interesting to see that the government has come out and made such a strong statement on it. Yeah. It's it's important we think about the design of these systems. And in that spirit, I say congratulations to SK Group for definitely burning down their data centre slash not burning <laughs> down their data centre and drawing greater attention to it. Uh, very important work, lads. And now for a bit of controversy. So this is a story that has divided Desenio's editorial team this month. It's a story from Passion... From Passion? From Paris Fashion Week, when the, fa- uh, the fashion brand Caperni closed its runway show by spraying a white off-shoulder dress onto a near-nude Bella Hadid. So a literal spray-on dress done, you know, almost like spray paint or something onto the body. That material is produced by the technology company Fabricant, and the dress is made from a series of natural and synthetic fibres which are suspended within a polymer solution. Once they're sprayed onto the body via an aerosol, that liquid evaporates, leaving behind a non-woven fabric. This was billed by the fashion house as representing a possible future for fashion. And the dress drew a lot of attention, which is really saying something, given that Kanye West went out of his way to try and grab all attention during Paris Fashion Week. Uh, But we're not going to talk about him because he doesn't deserve the publicity. Yeah, so as you may have guessed, I am super pro this dress. I think Ollie uh, thinks it was a bit of a gimmick, which is fair enough, but you know, whatever you think, you have to admit that it was really successful. The media impact value was uh, estimated by WWD to be $26.3 million. Um, I don't know how one calculates the media impact value. I mean, I'm sure that the media impact value of the crit is vast. I mean, you know, $55 million every episode just to hear our voices. I mean, it might be um, people start saying, yeah, they've made pretty libelous claims about someone burning down the data <laughs> Actually, yeah, we don't earn any money at all. We're not value. Please don't sue us. Um, but, you know, this blew up on TikTok, um, which is where I spend far too much of my spare time. And it was kind of cleverly tailor-made for it in a way. Um, it managed to draw the focus of the public it, over a sustained period of time. Um, it was also a generally positive story, which, you know, being able to go viral for something good is, uh, is you know, unusual, unfortunately, in these times of like really fast moving news cycles. Um, you know, and that's something that's been really impactful on the fashion industry because it used to be that you would present your collection six months in advance and only the buyers would see it and then they would let the press in but even then the press were working for kind of months in advance so they weren't going to be publishing it until the clothes were literally like there in the shops for buyers but now you know it happens and people are live streaming from the front row so you know it's interesting that instead of resisting that they have lent into that I personally I love the theatre of it it was very campy um you know uh 
they approached it in this quite um, performance art happening way where Bella was standing there, like this graceful statue coming to life while these workers in, um, you know, all black were kind of like funneling this spray on plastic onto her. I mean, kudos to her as well as a model because I bet that was really cold and uncomfortable and she managed to keep, you know, a very uh, charming expression on her face. I've heard the room itself was freezing as well. Yeah. To the degree that I think when they did uh, test runs with other models and stand-ins, it was, it was just impossible. It was too cold. I mean, yeah, so... You know, she was even smiling and kind of gently touching the faces of the designers as they worked. So, you know, <laughs> let it she? never be said. Yes, she like strokes one of their cheeks at one point when they're adjusting her arm. Did, did so, they not you know, think never. That was weird that she just started stroking. Them. They're friends. I don't think she was just like petting them. <laughs> I I feel like it was this kind of yeah to create a moment in fashion week is like the holy grail but it's so hard to actually create one that works i felt like it was a very uh nice homage to the alexander mcqueen show from 1999 which is kind of one of those like flashbulb moments of fashion where um They had Shalom Harlow in a white paper dress kind of standing there being spray painted by these two robots in this kind of duel as the closing moment of the show. Um, You know, I mean, I suppose it is a bit gimmicky. And (laughs) I... The thing, the thing that I will say that is probably bad is that that dress probably can't be reused. Um, So, yeah, not great. I mean, like like you set out, we, we just disagree on this one. And um, that's fine. And for me, the McQueen comparison does it no favours. I mean, I think the reason that McQueen performance was so visually fascinating and became such a thing was because the robots were... The robots? (laughs) The robots. The robots were very violent and aggressive. Like the so way you, want, you wanted was... her to be, you know, coated violently and aggressively <laughs> by like cannons of silly string. No, I don't. Well, mm, <laughs> now that's a question. Um, no, but I think there was something about and her movements throughout was super interesting. And I think what was good about it was it, it felt like something of a critique on fashion's impact on materials and bodies. You you can interpret it in lots of different ways. And I, I actually can't remember if Alexander McQueen ever came out and said what he'd intended by it. But it felt like a reflection on fa- fashion to have this kind of aggressiveness of the performance. Like... By comparison, I found the Caperni show quite dull. I think you're right. I think Hadid was super impressive in terms of that sort of like stillness and confidence. Her performance was kind of incredible. But the actual nature of the material and its application, I found quite tedious and very technical. Just watching two like men slowly walking around spraying out with little cans of sort of deodoranty stuff. It didn't feel like it had very much to say about fashion bar. Hey, isn't this material cool? Which I I guess maybe I know the company that make it have talked about using it for maybe field dressings or something like that. And in that respect, I think that material is very interesting. Do I think that in the future we're going to be spraying our clothes onto ourselves? No, it's really dumb. (laughs) 
like it doesn't bring any advantages so i i just thought it was like quite um an empty moment and i also thought the visual result of that mcqueen dress was really interesting i found the dress this ended up with quite boring it it just felt like a very standard dress almost like for such an elaborate procedure the end result was quite conventional and I mean fair enough I accept maybe that's the point to show you can get a very conventional dress at the result and maybe that's work that what works the surprise but I, I think for me it seemed to lack that edge which would have made this film more interesting maybe lacked that critical engagement with where fashion is it, it just felt a bit like fiddling around with materials for the sake of it and I'm fine with that I'm not knocking that I just think maybe that's it's well suited to TikTok so our final section for today we're both going to be making some recommendations of um design phenomena you can have a look at this month uh, my recommendation is a little bit of a cheat as it's not technically out yet but it will be out in november and before we record the next episode of the crit so you can track it down in the interim this is stephen burke's shelter in place it's a new book from yale university press that's an accompaniment to an exhibition of the same name that's now already on display at the high museum of art in atlanta georgia so i mean if you live in that if you live in Atlanta, you could go see the exhibition. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know who Stephen Burks is and what his work is like, he's a very interesting New York-based designer. His practice, I would say, is super focused on the role that craft, and he understands craft quite widely. So I think he'd incorporate within that things like wider cultural context and production could play within industrial design. Um, He's a really smart designer, I think, and an eloquent spokesperson about lots of issues around design. So that's why I would suggest both his book and exhibition are worth tracking down. Right. And we actually covered Contemporaries, which is the storefront gallery project that Stephen and his partner Malika Leiper, who served as the space's curator, launched in Dumbo um, in Brooklyn. And that was back in Disegno 28. And that was very much a project that was focused on looking at the role that design can play in neighbourhoods and trying to understand what it means for the discipline to be grounded in a specific place and in a specific time and you know what it means for design to be put to the service of communities. Yeah Stephen's an interesting figure because on the one hand he works in serious industrial production, has pieces with some great manufacturers like Didon, BD Barcelona. He's quite a heavyweight figure. But he also leads a lot of social workshops. That's a really important part of his practice. He did some very, very interesting ones with the craft workshops at Berrier College in the US, for instance. So I think I think he's someone who's probably been overdue a major retrospective like this. And it's particularly exciting insofar as uh, the exhibition is called Shelter in Place, but it also includes a new speculative project called Shelter in Place, hence the name, uh, which is engaging with imagined concepts for the home. And these are things where domestic products have been interwoven with ideas around social memory, identity and so on. Stephen is a very interesting speaker around issues like this and I have an early copy of the book which I haven't finished yet but I'm working my way through and have a very positive impression of so far and it's really nice to see that the book actually incorporates a lot of text. Um, This is something to really dive into and get to grips with Stephen's ideas and the ideas of the contributors to the books rather than what these things often end up as which is a catalogue of lovely imagery. 
Yeah, and I mean, I feel like it's almost burying the lead, not to lead with this, but one of the most exciting things about the um, publication is that it includes a discussion between Stephen and the bell hooks and i think it's actually one of her last interviews or certainly one of the last that she gave before her death in late 2021 so that is an amazing historic document in its own right speaking to one of the most incredible black writers thinkers and philosophers of her generation and um that conversation with Bell Hooks, I think, is indicative of the kind of level of practice that Stephen runs and is interested in and, you know, really focusing on connecting design to these wider social issues. And, uh, you know, we thought we would include some good news in this episode. It's not all depressing. Um, well, good news <laughs> if you're in the European Union, that is. Which um, we're not. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, Yeah, so the European Parliament is bringing in new laws that will standardise the type of charges that can be used for portable electronic equipment. So as of 2024, all phones, cameras, you know, the like will have to be equipped with a USB-C port that allows them to be charged. And by 2026, that will be expanded to include larger items such as laptops. So, you know, this is a game changer. No more scrabbling around, looking for the right charger. You know, it's always so frustrating if you're at a friend's house and they use a completely different brand of technology to you and no one's got the right charger. It feels like the future is finally here. Yeah, because, I mean, as much as tech companies promise that they are improving our lives and making things better, they definitely also make them harder in some really, really stupid and unnecessary ways. So the biggest culprit in this region of at least the one that springs to mind most obviously is Apple, who seem to really delight in switching up their charging system every few years, which they say is innovation. It just seems like faff, faffery. And this thing, it's not just about ease for the consumer. It's a really important step to try and stem e-waste because every time you need a new charging cable, you basically end up throwing all those old ones out and having to buy new. That's not good. Like If we're going to get serious about tackling waste, we need to stop that. Yeah, the European Parliament, when they announced this change, um, said that they estimated that 11,000 tonnes of e-waste produced annually in the EU is literally just unused or discarded chargers, which is mind-boggling. I mean, when I think of how many chargers I've probably gone through in a lifetime of using technology, I probably don't want to weigh that up. But still, that's that's crazy. And this new law is an attempt to prevent that. Um, it's also, it will help the consumer because it will try to prevent these uh, this thing called the lock-in effect, which is basically where you as a consumer kind of get locked in to buying their products and their products only because you already have this charging infrastructure for this one line of products and you can't really afford to make the switch. So I think this is a sensible and necessary piece of legislation. It's great news for people in the EU who get to enjoy the common charger and embarrassing for those whose governments recently left the union. But I mean, look, guys, we've we, Great Britain's been doing pretty well since then. <laughs> so, so who who's the real fool? 
Thank you for listening. And if you want to uh, hear more of The Crypt, you can like and subscribe. We also have another podcast, Words on Wood, if you're really interested in trees and forestry and how that relates to design. Or if forests aren't your thing, we have a third podcast, which is looking at design and technology and some of the debates about how those fields are developing. That is Where Next with MAP Project Office, and you can subscribe to that at Desenio Podcasts. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at thecrit at designojournal.com or you can follow us at Desenio Journal. And we'll be back next month with our annual year in review podcast. So look forward to that. In the interim, have a good November and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crit, which was co-hosted by me, Ollie Stratford, and India Block. It was produced and edited by Evie Hall. All music for The Crypt has been created by Yori Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram, and our logo was designed by Leonard Rothmoser. 